So tonight and next week, we are going to be in chapter 3 of Colossians. And we're really going to be talking about one topic, and that is the Christianese word sanctification, which we're going to define in just a minute. And so tonight we're going to tackle the first half of this chapter um, where Paul deals with one aspect of sanctification. And then next week we'll deal with the second half of the chapter where he turns his attention to another aspect of sanctification. Sanctification is a Christian term that basically just means to grow in your faith, to grow in holiness, sanctify or holy and occasion to grow in it. So sanctification is to grow in your faith and it's contrasted with justification. Justification is the once and for all act of your salvation. It's to be justified. So we as sinners apart from Christ stand as guilty and condemned before God. And so when we believe in Christ, we become justified. He credits to us his own perfection, his own righteousness, and we stand before God as justified, as just, as righteous, as perfect, then and forevermore, never having any kind of effect on it. That's justification. Sanctification is what flows out of justification. Sanctification is the process of while we stand before God as perfect, yet we still carry sin, like we still mess up in our own lives. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ. It's becoming more like the justification we have already been credited with. It's to become more and more like the image of Jesus. So sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Christ. To be sanctified is to be conformed into his image, to look like him more. And that's what Paul, again, is going to talk about for the next, basically, 26 verses of chapter 3 and one verse of chapter 4 about sanctification, about what it means and how we become more and more like Jesus. Let me try to explain it this way. Imagine humans are like houses, okay? Humans aren't houses, but imagine that they were. Outside of Christ, due to our sin, Due to our fallenness, due to our separation from God, humans are broken down, infested with mold, rotting dumps of houses. When a person is saved, their market value skyrockets. They become worth trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Their price is priceless. They are unmatched in value. They stand as perfect and spotless and blameless. They become as worthy as Jesus is. And so that's justification. This little shack that's dilapidated, that's broken down, that's disgusting, yet in Christ is worth millions upon billions upon, you can't even count it, of dollars. And yet that house still looks like it does. It's still a little dilapidated shack. And Christ is not content because he loves us so much to leave us that way. Christ wants our house, us, to be developed and renovated, to begin to look more and more and more like the property value that we've been given. And that's sanctification. Sanctification is Christ turning us from these dilapidated shacks into the beautiful mansions that he wants us to be and that we really stand as before him because of what he's accomplished for us. So sanctification is like house renovation. It's the spiritual flipping of a fixer-upper. And in house renovation, you don't just start building new stuff. 
You don't just take a cruddy shack and just start building new stuff onto it. You won't get a new house that way. Usually the first step is demolition. It's, it's always a necessary part of house renovation. You have to tear something down. Before you can really build and improve, you have to dismantle some stuff. And the same is true in sanctification. There are two aspects of sanctification in the Christian life, two phases Though unlike with a literal house, they don't occur one and then the other. They occur simultaneously. They occur at the same time. Sanctification includes both tearing, up, tearing down and building up. It involves taking away and adding to. It requires complete demolition sometimes so that new can be built in its place. Sanctification means dismantling and assembling. And tonight... Paul is going to focus on the dismantling aspect of sanctification, of tearing down, of putting away, of putting off. These are the words he's going to use. There's an aspect of sanctification that is, in a sense, negative. It's a tearing down, just like in a house you might tear a wall down in order to build up a more sturdy one. And that's where Paul is going to focus on in the first 11 verses of chapter 3 in Colossians tonight. So if you'll go ahead and turn there to verse 1 of chapter 3, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read the whole enchilada, like verse 1 of chapter 3 to verse 1 of chapter 4. I don't know why the person who made chapters and verses and didn't just like start chapter 4 after the verse that he did because it totally goes with what goes before, but whatever, he was cracked. We're going to read the whole thing, and I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the word, just out of reverence for it. So go ahead and stand. Don't be awkward. Just do it. And we're just going to read, uh, it's going to be 26 verses, so if you get lightheaded, it's okay. Like, sit down, don't pass out. But otherwise, just hear what Paul says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, 
Submit to your husbands as is sitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord. You all can have a seat. So, the first 11 verses. And what I want to do is just point out, because there's 11 verses, 11 things that Paul says about sanctification. And this isn't going to be like two hours, don't worry, they're quick points. But 11 things about sanctification that Paul draws out in the first 11 verses, and particularly what he draws out about this dismantling, this tearing down, this negative aspect of sanctification. So, number one, I swear this was working when I was back there. Hit it, Heather. Thank you. Sanctification is only a process for Christians. That's verse 1. A, or the first part of verse 1. So, if then you have been raised. Everything else Paul says in this chapter about sanctification hangs on that first word, if. If then you have been raised, then all this stuff. But if not, then none of it has anything to do with you. This is not a feel-good passage about how to become a good person. These are not steps that you can follow as a non-Christian to try to be nicer and be kinder. These are realities that only exist for those who've been raised with Christ. That's what it means when he says, if then you have been raised with Christ. And this raising is not a future thing. It includes that, but it's not that only. He says, if you have been raised. Now he's not talking to Colossians who have literally died and been resurrected and just walking around on the earth. He's talking to Christians like you and me, people who are still living their one earthly life. And he says, if you have been raised. And so this resurrection he's referring to, this raising he's talking about is one that occurs now. It's one that occurs in Christ. When we believe in Christ and are united to him, we are risen from spiritual death with him. When we are saved, We were raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it is that saving and reviving act that sends us onto a journey of sanctification. And every person who has been risen, every person who's believed and been raised with Christ is on that journey of sanctification. Number two, thank you. Seek things that have to do with Christ. This is the other half of verse one. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The word for seek in verse 1 is also the word for search. So what Paul's saying is that if we have been raised with Christ, what we search after, what we're trying to get our hands on, what we desire and want, what we want to take hold of, is now totally different than it was the literal moment before we were raised with Christ. Now that we have been raised with Christ, we seek after the things that have to do with him. If we have been raised, we have been raised onto a new plane of spiritual existence. We do not exist as we used to. 
we now exist where Christ does. As he's going to say in a minute, we've been raised to where he is, and he's at the right hand of the Father. And so we seek after the things that have to do with him. He is our great treasure and joy. We've been united to him, and therefore everything having to do with him, anything that is above where Christ is, should be what we seek after. Number three, what goes in our heads shapes our hearts. Look at verse one and two. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on things of earth. Notice that it's the same exact phrasing. Seek the things that are above and then set your minds on the things that are above. It's the same exact wording. And so what Paul is saying here is this is how you do your seeking. You don't just like literally go out into the world and try to mystically find in the forest like some kind of thing that's above with Christ. You could go out there and set your mind on the things that are about Christ, but what's about Christ is not out in the world to be found. It's found by setting your minds. We seek not by physically searching for something. We seek by what we set our minds on, by what we put into our brains. This is one of the most neglected aspects of sanctification, including in my own life. What are you putting into your heads? Via your eyes? Via your ears? Via anything? What you see on social media? What TV we watch? What, and I'm talking to myself, not just you. Like, what am I putting into my head? Because apparently the way I seek after the things that have to do with Christ is by setting my minds on those things. But if my mind is constantly on all these other things that have nothing to do with Christ... I'm not seeking after the things that have to do with Christ. Now, that isn't to say you can't ever watch Love is Blind or like these different shows. Uh, maybe I'm letting myself off the hook too easy there, but I don't think it means you can't ever, like you just must be a monk thinking 100% about Jesus all the time. I don't think that's the life Christ has envisioned for you. He wants you to go evangelize. He wants you making friends in your workplaces. That's not what we're talking about. But even in those things, even in all the day-to-day -day activities we get up to, are we able, are we in some way able to set our minds on the things that have to do with Christ? Because apparently what we put into our brains affects our heart. That's what we saw in our last series on the knowledge of the holy, where we talked about the attributes of God. We said, what you know informs what you love. Or to grow in your love for something, you need to grow in your knowledge of it. And the same thing is true in sanctification, the way we grow in our love for Jesus, the way we transform to be more like him is by knowing him more, is by setting our mind on him, by growing in our knowledge of him. It's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Transformation in the Christian life, sanctification flows largely from what we set our minds on, by what consumes our brain activity. What we set our minds on is how we seek with our hearts. So pay attention then to what goes into your brain because whatever does will make its way down into your hearts and will either fuel or stunt or totally detract from your growth in the faith. Number four, we are dead to the world. This is in verse three. For you have died, you have died 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The reason we have been raised with Christ is because we have died with Christ. And so now we seek and set our minds on the things that are above with him, not on the things of earth. The reason we do that is because of verse four or verse three, because we have died with him. The only way to be raised with Christ is to die with him. By faith in Jesus, we are united to him. Everything that is true of Christ is true of you. His perfect life credited to you so that you stand justified before the Lord. His sacrificial death, you have died with him in it. And in his resurrection, you have risen to new life with him. The reason Paul gives for our not seeking things on earth is that we have died with Christ. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on earth, for or because you have died. Christians are dead to the world. Sometimes when someone's burned you, like someone's made you mad, like, I don't know, broken up with you, or my sister, anytime a guy would break up with my sister and we would, you know, share a story like, oh, remember that one time that guy did that? And my dad would always go, who's that? And he knows who we're talking about. And we'd be like, you know, and he's like, yeah, but he's dead to me. We use the phrase dead to me, oh, maybe not a lot, but we use it in our culture to refer to someone that you have nothing to do with. You couldn't care an inch about them. You don't care at all about them. They mean nothing to you. You have nothing to do with them. They're dead to you. And for all you're concerned, you're dead to them. That's what Paul is talking about here. When he says that we have died, it means that we have died to the world and it to us. We consider the world as dead to us and it should consider us dead to it. We have nothing to do with it. It's not for us to interact with anymore. We are different. We are separated from it. Paul wants the Colossian believers to see themselves in that light, to see themselves as having nothing to do with the world. And that's why they seek after the things that are above with Christ because it's dead to them. The world's dead to them. Why would they spend their time seeking things with it? It has nothing to do with them. We have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Why then would we seek after and set our minds on what is dead to us? It is nothing for us. Number five, this is a big one. The Christian life is war. Paul says in verse five, put to death. And then he goes on and mentions some things. But he says, put to death. In Greek, it's just the one word, nekrao, where we get necro. And it's a command, kill. It could have been easily translated, kill. Not fight, not battle, not work against, kill. Put to death. This is the crux of the dismantling side of sanctification. And it can be summed up in the phrase that Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. Kill those things that are not part of or flowing from your risen life with Christ because you have died to them, put them to death. Kill, slaughter, terminate, put to death. I know in our culture, we don't like talking about death. We don't even like to talk like in this way about killing something, like even animals. We like pretend they just show up like in our fridges already dead and packaged that way. We don't like to talk about killing or death. But Paul is okay with it. Paul is okay with saying, kill, go after, assassinate, slit the throat of. Like he's that serious about this situation. And I want you to feel it. 
He could just say strive against. He could just say struggle against. But Paul, for some reason, sees this situation as so incredibly serious. The only command he knows to give is to say, kill. Kill the sin in your life. We like to play patty cake with our sin, or at least I do. Like, I'll just like play with it a little bit. And like, it's not that dangerous. Like, it's not that big of a deal. It's not gonna hurt that much in my life. I can keep it at bay. And Paul says otherwise. Paul believes, though you're saved from your sin, sin is incredibly dangerous in the life of the believer. Why? Well, I think the Puritan John Owen said it well. He said, kill sin or sin will be killing you. Or Paul says it this way, if you want a biblical verse, which you should. Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. So if you live according to the flesh, if you live according to the world, if you don't do what he's talking about here and you just go on living, you will die. But then he finishes the verse this way. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So if you live according to the flesh, it's going to kill you. But if you by the Spirit will put the flesh to death, you will live. In the Christian life, when it comes to sin, it really is kill or be killed. We kill sin, we put it to death, or it will do the same to us. Now listen, I want to be clear, and I think John Owen would want to be clear, and I know Paul would want to be clear. When we talk about sin killing a Christian, when we talk about kill it or it's going to kill you, or when Paul says put it to uh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. They're not meaning you will lose your salvation. You cannot undo what Christ has done for you. What Christ has accomplished in your stead cannot be undone. You're not that strong. Your sin is not that strong. It may feel like it at times, but it's not. You cannot undo what Christ has done for you in his life, death, and resurrection. And so that's not what they mean. So the question is, well, what do they mean? And what they mean is death in the sense of missing out on, of not living into the full life that Christ has for you. What Christ has done is not just purchased eternal life, but purchased for you here and now, full and complete, 100%, cannot be surpassed, joy and pleasure. And he wants you to walk into it, to step into it, to enjoy it. And what sin will do will keep you from that. It's why sin in the heart of a believer, when we slip up and we fall, even again for the hundredth time in the same way, feels like death. It feels like, why have I done this? It feels. And then if you've been in places like I have in my life, even as a Christian, you get to the place where it doesn't feel that way because you've numbed yourself to your own sin by doing it so much and you don't feel bad about your sin, you feel bad for that. You feel like, oh my gosh, I don't even feel bad for the sin I just committed, and then you feel bad about that thing. Sin feels like, in the life of the believer, death, because it is. Not because it's causing us to be unsaved. We often go there, and that's not what's happening. Not because it's causing us to be unsaved, but because we are not walking in step with the Spirit. We are not walking into the full life that Christ has for us. That's how sin kills a believer. It robs him and her 
of the full life that Christ has purchased for them. But there's a danger here. There's always a danger when we ever read a command in Scripture. We, especially as Americans who like to do things, we love to-do lists, we like to accomplish things. Anytime we read a command in Scripture, we think, okay, good, something I can do. And then we become really legalistic about it, or we become really self-righteous about it, or when we don't measure up to it, we become super fatalist, and we think, well, maybe I'm not a Christian Paul said, kill this sin, and I haven't yet. Paul says, kill what's earthly in you, and I have all this stuff that's still earthly in me. So either way we go, we become so far just like, yeah, I'm killing my sin, not realizing that's pride you're not killing. Or we go the other way, and we say, I'm just not killing my sin. I must not be a real Christian. I must not be saved. Paul knows that experience. Go read Romans 7 tonight, where Paul writes about his own struggle with sin, where he says, I know what I should do and I don't. In fact, I do the very thing that I don't want to do, that I know I shouldn't be doing. Paul, the Apostle Paul, inspired writer of almost half the New Testament, freaking awesome missionary guy, has the same struggle we do with sin, continues to slip in the ways he shouldn't, continues to find things in him that are earthly that he knows he should be putting you to death and he hasn't yet or he's failing to. And so... Paul knowing this about himself, Paul knowing this about you and me, includes a really important verse in the, word in this verse. Paul doesn't just say, put to death what is earthly in you. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And that's a seemingly insignificant word, but it's the most important word in that sentence. What that word therefore does is draw your attention to back, back draws your attention back to what he just said. Put to death, therefore, or in light of what I just said, put what to death what is earthly in you. And what has he just said? He's talked about your death and resurrection in Christ. He's established you as saved already. He said, you are good. You are standing as justified. He's established your justification. He has said in verse four, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He's not unsure about it for the Colossians. He doesn't command them, put to death what is earthly in you. And if you do, then one day you're going to appear with Christ in glory. You're going to enter heaven. No, he says, you will appear with Christ in glory, a.k.a. you will make it. You will be saved to the uttermost. You will be kept. You will make it into glory forever with Christ, forevermore. And then he says, put to death, therefore, or so, or in light of that, Put to death what is earthly in you. Paul anchors our fighting sin in the gospel, in Christ's work for us. He establishes everything that Christ has done for us and then says, in light of that, because you're good already, because you're saved, now go and kill your sin. Because Christ has already gotten victory over your sin, because he's killed it on the cross already, because he's robbed of all its power, go kill your sin. It's a daunting thing to wake up tomorrow thinking, I've got to fight my sin today. But if you know that your sin has already been vanquished, if you know that your sin has already been defeated, if you know that it's already been paid for and killed on the cross, you're way more jazzed and ready to go into battle. Like if you're on a football team and you know you're going to play against people who haven't slept in like three weeks, you're feeling pretty good about your chances to go into that football game and win. This is on a totally different what, like realm. It's not that sin hasn't gotten sleep. Sin has no power over you. 
it has already been killed in Christ. Our sin can feel very powerful because of its ingrained nature in our minds and in our hearts. Like it can get really stuck in us. And so it feels like really hard to get over. Really like I'm never going to let go of this. I'm never going to be able to defeat this. It's got so much power over me. And I'm not discounting how ingrained those patterns can be in our life and therefore how difficult it can be to fight sin. But what I am saying is that that's a mirage. Your sin is not more powerful than the spirit who lives inside of you. I don't care how ingrained it is. I don't care how long you've been addicted. I don't care any of that. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm just saying the chains have been broken. Like before Christ, you're wrapped up in these chains, unable to fight your sin. Christ has broken the chains. Sometimes we lay them back on ourselves, but they're still broken chains. What's required of us is just to lay them off again, just to take them off. They have no power over us. In our being saved, we have been drafted into a war against our sin against these things, these earthly things that will rob us of the full life that Christ wants for us and has raised us into. And the good news is that Christ has already won the war. The war is won. It is not up in the air. And I don't mean in general, but you might miss out on it. The war of your Christian life is won. Not just your justification that you were saved and you were won there, but now you might lose it. Your assurance that you will make it to glory has been won. You will. It's not up to you anymore. Paul says in Romans 8, like those who he predestined, he justifies, though he justifies, he glorifies. You will be brought into glory. So the war is already won. The enemy has already been defeated. They've been robbed of all their power. All we have to do is chase down and slaughter the fleeing enemy that's our marching order. Victory is won. They're fleeing. They'd like you to believe that your sin is strong. It's not. Go to war with it. Battle it. Kill it. Don't just put it in a little box and think like it's fine. Put it to death. Put to death what has already been put to death in the death of Christ. Number six. That was a long one. It's the longest one. Don't worry. Number six. Even for believers, and this is going to require some explaining, even for believers, God's wrath is a motivation to fight sin. Even for believers, God's wrath, God's coming wrath, is a motivation to fight sin. Look at verse 7. So after Paul mentioned some, um, sorry, verse 6. After Paul mentioned some of these sins that we need to put to death, verse 6 he says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. What the heck, Paul? I thought you already said we were saved. Am I like impossibility of like getting the wrath of God poured out on me now? No. God is a God of justice, which is good news. Sin incurs a debt that must be paid. That's bad news. And it will be paid. That's iffy news. What do you mean? God's grace is not saying, ah, your sin's not that big a deal, man, don't worry about it. God's grace is not saying, you know what, I'm not that just. I don't really care if you've sinned against me. Don't worry about it. God's grace is not saying, you know what, I know you've done all this stuff, but we can just turn a blind eye toward it while it exists over there. God's grace 
is saying, I see the full weight of your sin. I see it in all its ugliness. I see it in all its putrid wretchedness. I see your sin and it is grotesque, but I will not require you to pay it. Your sin has racked up a debt that you cannot pay apart from an eternity spent away from him. And because God desires you, he says, I will not require that of you. Instead, I will pay it myself. I will maintain my justice by requiring that debt to be paid and I will delve, deliver out grace by paying for it myself so that you can get off scot-free. The debt is still paid, but we do not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath is coming to punish sin. That's what this verse says, what the rest of the Bible says. Sin will be punished by God's wrath. The only question is, who will taste his wrath? Who will experience that wrath? Who will be holding on to the sin when God's wrath is poured on to it? Will we or will we allow Christ to hold it for us? That's the options on the table, the only options. The sin must be paid for. The sin must be destroyed. It must stand under the fountain of God's wrath and it be turned on full. The only question is, who stands holding the sin? We or by God's grace, Christ for us. All Christians, all of us, we aren't under threat for God's wrath coming for us. God's wrath in verse 6, when it says it's coming on these things, is not coming for us, for you and me, because we don't hold our sin anymore. We've given it over to Christ. It's the only difference between you and a non-believer is that you have handed over, by God's grace, your sin to Christ for him to be punished in your place, while your, our friends, our loved ones, continue to hold on to their sin. So God's wrath is not coming for you. Christ has paid our price and he's paid it in full. It is a done deal and it can't be undone. He knew every sin we would ever commit from the moment we believed on and he has paid the full price for all of it. So why does Paul bring this up? He's writing to Christians. If it's not coming for us, why does he bring it up? I think two reasons. One, because there may be people hearing this letter who this is not true of who are not Christians. Ever since the first church, there have always been Christians or people claiming to be Christians who were not, who claimed to be believers. They did all the Christian stuff, but they were not. And I don't say that self-righteously. I say that as someone who that was my story. 18 years growing up in the church, doing all the Christian stuff, thinking I was doing more good than bad so that I could make sure God was happy for me, with me and not send me to hell. And I was not saved the entire time. I didn't know that. I just thought you'd go to church, you're good with God. And that's not the case. So there's Christian people in Colossae hearing this letter read to the church who are sitting there who are not united with Christ, who do the Christian thing, who think they're believers and everybody else thinks they're believers, but they are not. And so what they need is a bucket of cold water to be splashed on their head of the wrath of God is coming. I will never forget standing in my church growing up as like a 12-year-old. I'd been baptized at this point. Like I was doing the Christian thing, I thought. And I remember standing in the back, not paying attention. And I wasn't even listening to the sermon. I just remember hearing the sentence by my lead pastor. Not everyone in this room is going to be in heaven. Because he knew 
there's people probably here just doing the church thing that don't actually believe in Jesus and probably won't. And I remember being freaked. I stopped. I don't remember what I was doing, but I was like, what? What do you mean? We're all in church. Like that's the, we're the people who get to go. What are you talking about, Clint? That was his name. I was shocked. I didn't do anything with that knowledge for six more years. Like, well, I don't know. I'm good. I'm at church. I don't know who he's talking about, but he's not talking about me and just continued on my life. There are people like me at Red Mountain who do the Christian thing because it's what their parents tell them to do or it's what they just feel like they do because people will go to their businesses if they think they're a Christian and they aren't connected to Christ and they need to hear a verse like this. But there's also a second reason, I think. The second reason is because Christians need all the motivations they can get their hands on to fight their sin. Remember, this is about sanctification. This is about fighting sin. This is in the context of fighting and killing our sin. And I think Paul brings it up to give a motivation to Christians. Hey, kill your sin because the wrath of God is coming on it. Now again, for Christians, our sin has been taken care of by Christ. We're not gonna taste that wrath. But the thing we're doing when we sin is going to be paid, is going to, receive God's wrath. God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus for that sin. We as Christians shouldn't want to take part in that. And so as Christians, we need as many motivations as we can get our hands on not to sin. Now, what we would love is for in the moment of temptation, for our like hearts to be like, you know what? No temptation. I love Jesus so much. I'm not going to sin. That's the best case scenario. There are seasons where that's the case. Sin tempts you and you say, no, I love Christ. I'm not going to do that. And you don't even need any motivations. But there are days that ain't the case. There are days sin looks really enticing. There are days it seems it is so much easier to give in to sin than to obey Christ and kill it. And what you need in that moment is as many motivations as you can, as many levies against that rising tide of temptation to keep it back, as many things for you to think, but if I do it, this is going to happen. And then when you justify, yeah, but maybe no one will find out about it, another motivation is like, well, but this would happen potentially. I could lose my job or this person could break up with me or whatever the motivations would be for you. You should spend time thinking through all the motivations you can so that you run through that list when you're contemplating sinning. And at the bottom maybe should be God's wrath is going to be poured out on this. It has been for me in Jesus Christ. It's going to be poured out on someone else who's not a believer for this very thing. God's wrath is going to come and cleanse like a fire the entire cosmos, including all the sin that is in it. As a Christian, I don't want to have a hand in that. I don't want to partner in that. Even if I'm good and I'm saved and I'm paid for, I don't want to play a part and partner with the very thing that is going to have God's wrath poured out on it. So that's at least what I think. And maybe you'll have better ideas at your discussion group tables, to be honest, I think it's very perplexing. Paul puts it there in the context of Christians. So you can wrestle with it at your tables. Those are my best guesses at what he's talking about. Scott probably knows the right answer, so ask him afterwards. Christians need as many motivations as they can get to use in the moment of temptation to keep us from falling to sin. And I think one of the bottom foundational ones, if everything else fails, is I don't want to play a part. I don't want to hold in my hands, even if it's paid for, something that God's wrath is going to be poured out on. Number seven, Christians still struggle with sin and will until Christ's return. 
while that's comforting, that should not yield complacency. This is a long one, but it's a really important one. Look at verse 7 and 8. He's talking to the Colossians. He just said God's wrath is coming on sin. And he says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So he says, In these you too once walked but you need to put them away now. I find it incredibly encouraging that Paul says, on one hand, you once walked in these sinful ways, and on the other, now you must put them away. The Colossians haven't put away totally the things they used to walk in. In these things you used to walk in, but now you need to put them away. These are Christians can destroy they're saved from. And I find that incredibly comforting because I am a Christian who continues to struggle with the very things that I've been saved from. The Colossians and the early believers were not Christians who never struggled with sin again or who struggled only with new sin, not the sin they used to struggle with. He says, these things you used to walk in So used to, that's past tense. And yet he also says, now put them away. So it's things they're continuing to. And I find that incredibly comforting. He's telling Christians that they need to put off and put away the very things they used to walk in, the things that they have been saved from. They now need to put away. And so he's dealing with Christians and we are always dealing with Christians. You and I are Christians who are still struggling with the very things we used to walk in and now have been saved from. And that's comforting. Not as an excuse for continuing to walk in them, not as a complacency thing, because he says, now put them away. But it's comforting because there's often times in our Christian lives where we fall again to the very thing we were saved from. Like the biggest sin before we were Christians, we fall again and we're like, that was 10 years ago. How am I still struggling with this? Well, Paul says, yeah, and these things you used to walk in, used to live in them is what he's saying. These used to be your identity. This used to be your life. Now it's no longer your life. It's no longer your identity. You don't walk in these things just living in them willy-nilly. Now you're in war against them. And yeah, sometimes you slip and you put it to death again afterwards. You put them away. It encourages me so much because this is my experience as well. And it's the Colossians experience. I've not arrived. Scott's not arrived. Janetta, as saintly as she is, somehow has not arrived. I'm still drawn to the ways of life that I used to walk in and live in before I knew Jesus. And at times, I can still stumble to those things. Pride, arrogance, anger. And the Colossians did too, and Paul knows. And so he writes and he says, you used to walk in these things. You've been saved from them. Take heart, you're not lost because you've slipped again. Just put it away. Put it away again. You used to have it killed. You used to have it under your thumb. Do so again by the power of the Spirit. It should encourage us that while Paul is writing to Christians, he still has to tell them to put off their old ways. We need to accept that we will have things in our lives for the rest of our Christian life that we will need to put away. We may experience victory in one area and never struggle with it again, but we will find new ways. If it's not one thing, it's another. Ways to sin. 
and Christ calls us for that thing. Okay, put it away. And then if we experience victory in Christ, we put the next thing away and we put away and we put away and we put away until we return home. And for once and for all, we are made perfect in ourselves. Then our living actually will match our standing before God. Number eight, we live in the tension of the old and new self. So look at verse nine. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, or the word there is just the old man, the old body. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So Christians are these weird creatures who, when we come to faith, we're given new hearts. The heart of stone that we have towards God that does not love him and see him as he is, is taken out and we are given hearts of flesh where we love him. Even if we don't live perfectly, we do love him and we treasure him. We value him as he is above everything else. Even if we struggle with putting other things in front of him, we have new hearts. And yet we still carry the marks of the fall in our bodies. We still carry the flesh is what the New Testament calls it. So new hearts, same flesh. And it's that flesh that we are killing, this flesh of like a sin nature. And so I still am not sure how it totally works out. I don't know how with a new heart, you would think I don't have a sin nature anymore. And yet we're still drawn to sin. And I don't know exactly how that all works out. It's a mystery. I just know the Bible presents that we are new creatures and yet continue to struggle with the old self. We're new creations. And yet we continue to bear scars and mark markings of our former selves that will rise up and we need to put to death. And so that's your identity. When you find things, either sinful temptation, sinful desires rising up in you, it shouldn't freak you out. You still have flesh and it needs to be killed. That's what needs to be killed in you. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't need to write any of this. You just have a new creation, no struggle with sin anymore because you're good for the rest of your life. No, we still carry the flesh and it needs to be put to death but take heart because you are a new creation you have the spirit of God dwelling in you you are a new creature that flesh does not define you it is not your primary identity it used to be really popular at least where I'm from in Christian circles to refer to oneself it was in my Twitter bio for like two years and I regret it but to refer to yourself as a sinner saved by grace don't ever call yourself that that is not true you are not a sinner saved by grace. You are a saint who sometimes sins. Your identity is not sinner. Your identity is not porn addict. Your identity is not gossiper. Your identity is whatever sin you have. It is not your identity. It is not who you are. And even by referring to yourself as sinner saved by grace, you're placing yourself in the old self and saying, that's who I am. I'm a sinner, but at least I'm saved by grace. No, no. You are a saint. You are a new creation. Sin has no hold on you. It can't touch you. You are a son and daughter of the Most High God. And yes, you fall. You stumble, just like a little kid learning to walk. You are a saint who sometimes sins. You are a new creation that still carries with it the flesh that needs to be put to death more and more and more until you enter glory or Christ returns, and it's no more. And then you're just a new creation. No more flesh. No more even desire to sin. 
No more temptation or flare-up of sin. And it's gone. It's this utter peace of new creation, of only desiring Christ and nothing else. That's your identity. We live in the tension between the old and the new self, but we are a new self who still carries the flesh. We are saints who sometimes stumble. Number nine. We're getting there, peeps. There's only 11, remember. Renewal comes by knowing Jesus more and more. We've already talked about this, so I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to see you this, this way of thinking again in Scripture. This is along the same lines of what we saw earlier with knowledge informing our hearts, which results in transformation. We grow in the faith. We are transformed. We are sanctified by knowledge. That's what this verse says in verse 10. So, having put off the old self with its practices, verse 10, having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we're renewed in, or that word can just be by, we're renewed by knowledge after the image of our creator. This is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 3, which is just one of my favorite passages on sanctification. Let me turn there. 1 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all, with unveiled face, so seeing clearly, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. So beholding Christ, beholding Him, looking at Him, staring at Him, seeing Him, knowing Him, we are transformed into the same image as Him. From one degree of glory to another. That is how Christian growth happens. That's how it works. We stare and we look long and hard at Jesus. And the more we get to know him, the more we look at him, the more we stare at him, the more we ourselves are transformed into his very image. Our new self is being renewed by knowledge of him after the image of its creator. So look at Jesus, stare at him, not the things of the world, but at him. Verse 10, or sorry, not verse 10, point 10. Every Christian of all backgrounds is in the same boat. This is verse 11. Here, so in the new self, in this new reality we've all been saved into, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is not a titanic situation. There aren't some classes of Christians who are getting into lifeboats and others who aren't. There aren't just classes at all. There's not first class, more mature Christians and second class, less mature Christians. There are Christians who are further along because they're older in the faith. They've been saved earlier and they've grown more because of that. But there's not classes here. There's not differences in value. There's not distinctions like that. Every Christian has died and is risen with Christ. Every Christian has been drafted into the same war on sin. Every Christian has sinned. They need to be killing and putting away. Every Christian lives in the tension between the old and the new self. That is what Paul is saying here. He isn't erasing distinctions. He isn't saying that if you become a Christian, your ethnicity just goes away. That's crazy. He's not saying that by saying there's no Jew or Greek. What he's saying is that in Christ, in the new self, those distinctions matter for nothing. They don't mean anything anymore. They exist, but they don't mean anything. They have no 
nothing to do with our standing. They have nothing to do with who we are in Christ. We are all in the same boat, regardless of background. We were all sinners. We have all died and been raised with Christ, and we are all on a journey of becoming more like him. Whatever your background, however bad or how good you think it is, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your socioeconomic status, it does not matter at all. We are all in the same boat, on a journey, becoming more and more like Jesus. There is no varsity and junior varsity Christians. There are just those who are further along because they're older, like Scott. He's ancient. So he's going to be more mature than me. And there are those like me who are younger because we're babies, learning from our older brothers what it's like to walk in the faith. That's the only distinctions there are, is further along and less far along. And one day those less far along will be further along, and there'll be new baby Christians who are not as far along as them. That's the only distinctions here. Number 11, Christ is all and in all. I'm going to let you guys discuss that one at your tables. I racked my brain on why Paul puts that there and what he means by it. I think he means something along the lines of like, well, Christ is everybody's. Christ is the same for everybody. But I'm not sure exactly. And I don't know why here in a passage about sanctification. So that's what we're going to hash out at our discussion group tables largely. Why does Paul here, like why not at the end of this big long passage on sanctification? Why here in the middle? Why here right after this discussion about distinctions? What does that have to do with these distinctions? Like what is he saying there? I think I have an idea, but I want you guys to tell me in your discussion group. So we're going to leave that one for you to just chew on and work on together. You guys have proven the past two weeks you can do that, so we're going to do that together in a little bit. This is the first side of sanctification, the first phase. Not really, again, as though one occurs and then another. They're always occurring together side by side, dismantling and assembling. But this is the first one Paul takes up. This is the first one he deals with. One side of the coin of sanctification involves putting off and putting away, of tearing down, of demolition work, of dismantling. Sanctification on this side of the coin is a war that requires killing. This is what we've been called into. We've been drafted. We've been called up. While we don't bring the ultimate victory about, it's already been won. We are called to the front lines with our sin all the same. And we are called to actively put it to death by his power. Christ is in the process of transforming each of you as believers into a dream home, into a wonderful mansion that you only wish you could own that you saw in Zillow. You've already been justified. Your market value is off the charts You are priceless as you stand, even as a dilapidated shack before God of the universe. And yet, you need some work. You need some touching up in places. If you're like me, you need a complete demo job in others. And Christ is ready and able to do that work. And he's given you the grace of inviting you to have your hand in it with him. He could have had it where you just sit on the couch and you just sit there and you're transformed as you're sitting there by Christ. But that's not how he's done it. He's called you to activity. He's called you to actively kill your sin by seeking, by setting your mind on certain things, by killing, by putting away, by putting off, or in short, by entering 
with him into the dismantling work of sanctification. And next week we'll turn to the assembling work. So let's pray and then we'll sing a couple more songs and then go into our discussion groups. Lord, you're so gracious to give us a hand in our own transformation. Not that we bring it about as we talk about often here that we're not the ones who ultimately have the power to bring about our transformation, but we have the power to control where we look. And so we want to look to you. We have the power to say no when temptation rises because we have you in us. And so we want to say no to temptation. We have power because of you living in us to fight our sin, to put it to death. And when it rises again, to put it to death again, our whole lives. And so we ask that you would help us to do that. Lord, we ask that you would help us to follow after you and to be obedient to you. That's what our hearts desire now. And so help us to do it by your grace. We thank you for your love for us. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.